A huge percentage of the New Testament we have because of the Apostle Paul. His writings to the Ephesians, to the Colossians, to the Corinthians. And this town of Ephesus was a place where he actually lived for years, three years, plying his trade as a tent maker, being part of the Christian community. What I love though, in spite of how important he is to Christian history, is that Paul was a person, a real person. And he walked down these very streets and there's little shops along the edges. There's the library with 12,000 scrolls behind me. I just wonder what his daily walk literally would have been like. Did he have a favorite place to talk to people, to eat? Did he stop in at the library? It makes him a real person to me. Welcome to the third episode in our special 10-episode series about Turkey as the crossroads of faith, both ancient and modern. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. We believe that all faith traditions have something to teach us about how God is working in the world and in our lives. So we're exploring Turkey, where Judaism, Christianity, and Islam meet, all in hopes of seeing how the world of faith we live in today came to be, and hopefully understand each other and even God better for having spent time to listen, learn, and be amazed. Let's explore the crossroads of faith. We arrive in the excavated ancient city of Ephesus. It's about nine in the morning. It's gonna be a gorgeous sunny day with an immense blue sky. Hundreds of other tourists are descending from their luxury motor coaches, speaking Chinese and German and Spanish and American English with a Southern twang. And there are several souvenir shops in the parking lot, including my favorite, advertising genuine fake watches. From the parking lot, we see the city is actually below us, sitting in a valley. My producer Heather and I start down the marble road into the ruins, followed by our guide, Lutfi. It's just interesting to be in a place where we know Paul actually lived for years. No. And amphitheater, but still pretty impressive that it's right here on the hillside. Of that podium, uh, the whole statue of Roman Emperor Domitianus would be visible from the ports. Welcome to In Good Faith. I'm your host, Stephen Cap Perry. Today we're talking about a place and a person, both of which were important in the first expansion of a world religion. We're visiting Ephesus this week to understand early Christian converts and the life of Paul. We'll talk again with Professor Luke Drake and meet Kent Brown, another expert in ancient scripture, and we'll walk with our guide, Lutfi Bedar, through the ruins at Ephesus on the southwest coast of Turkey, a few hours' drive from Izmir. And we'll think about what it means to be from a place, to be a visitor to a place, and to belong. All this week in our special series on faith in Turkey. Let's get started. Next, you'll hear a familiar voice, Professor Luke Drake, reminding us of how Ephesus fits into the ancient Mediterranean landscape. Ephesus is an important ancient metropolis. I mean, this is the probably the third largest city of the Roman Empire. You've got Rome, you've got Alexandria in Egypt, and you have Ephesus. I mean, this is like a Chicago, this is a Los Angeles, this is, a, this is an important city. 150, 250,000 people there. And we're finding out how large Ephesus truly is as we walk through the streets and explore the back alleyways. Ephesus hosts enormous buildings, many of them part of the Roman colonial bureaucracy but also civic spaces like the famous library and amphitheater, as well as houses for the wealthy and the political elite. Here's our guide, Lutfi. So here we have um, an area dedicated to Roman emperors. We have like a piazza, a little bit further. And then that busy street is called as the Crete Street. That's the high street of Ephesus colonnaded on both sides. And at the end was the Celsus Library, which is the most impressive and most remarkable building in Ephesus. It was uh, the third largest library of its period, after Alexandria and Pergamum. Hmm. 
I also talked with Professor Kent Brown about Ephesus, especially places within this city-state that would have made Ephesus so important to the surrounding country. Kent Brown is a professor emeritus of ancient scripture and the former director of the BYU Jerusalem Center. He holds a Ph.D. in religious studies from Brown University with an emphasis in New Testament and early Christian studies. Ephesus was a place where goods brought by sailing ships and goods that were brought overland from the east met and were traded and so on. The Ephesian theater will seat some 25,000 people. It's enormous. If you can imagine an actor standing down at the base of this thing, at the level of the first row of seats, talking in just louder tones than a normal voice, and the person at the top hearing, clearly hearing. It's, It's a masterpiece of architecture. It has been refurbished and redone since Paul's day. The Romans eventually built a stage, which is interesting to explore by itself, but it's something. And once you get up there, you can see the sea. Kent reminds us of the magnificent temple of Artemis, which we talked about in our last episode, to help convey the polytheistic world the Jews of the time lived in. But Artemis and her temple are still important to our story, for now it helps us understand Paul's experience in Ephesus. There was about a mile and a half away this stunning, beautiful temple built to Diana. She's called Diana in Latin. She's known as Artemis in Greek. But the floor size of this thing was almost about the size of a football field. And you can imagine 60-foot columns and so on. It was the most amazing place. This is one of the seven wonders of the world. It's massive. And you're used to just, you know, being in a small village. I mean, this is something divine, magnificent, fills you with awe. It's a place now to say prayers, uh, make vows, you know, help me with this, God, and I vow that I will come back and I'll carve you a statue. I vow that I will buy a pig and sacrifice it to you. There's going to be more food there. There's going to be people, uh, commercial interests there. You're going to have people with uh, interesting wares to sell at a site like that. And people came from all over the empire to see it, to worship there, to take home trinkets from there, including silver trinkets. Now, in Ephesus, there was a lower market, and that looks to be the place where Paul plied his trade as a sower, twill, and these kinds of things. But also in this marketplace, it's like a big square with shops all the way around, big open place, there were silversmiths who carved and hammered, made trinkets look like some of the statues you could see over at the big temple. And their business was very much dependent on tourists who came through, who would buy this and buy that to take home to grandma or children. But here's this little sawed-off Jew working in that place over there, and he's impacting our business because there are people joining his church, and he's saying to them, no more idolatry, no more of these little things that people worship. We approached the gigantic amphitheater from the left-hand side, climbing a short set of steps till we can see the marble stage. When we walk a few more yards, the entire seating arena is revealed, dozens of rows of marble benches extending high above our heads. The upper reaches of the seating are fenced off. They're too crumbly to be safe. We climb as high as we can, deep steps that take your breath away, and then turn around to look back down on the stage. As other tourists enter the theater, they appear tiny, equipped with their hats and maps and sunglasses, collected in their groups on the seats with their guides. Beyond the stage are green fields and hills. There used to be a river that came all the way up from the sea, but that silted in. This is the ancient theater in Ephesus, a place that holds about 24,000 people. So just picture in the time of Paul, when the Christians were starting to convert people here and all the silversmiths who got together and had their guild held a meeting here. 
lots of them. Because they were losing their income, Christians weren't buying the little statues that they made of silver of Artemis, who was the patron goddess of the city of Ephesus. And there became such an uproar here that people came running from all over the town. Paul wanted to come in here and try and quiet the people down, but some people who were close to him knew what would happen if he stepped in himself and they held him back. So the silversmiths and others go into this theater for a meeting. They decide they're gonna to try to get rid of this guy and anybody else who's associated with him. And it's a big enough crowd that they, they start great as, great as the Temple of Diana, something like that. But in the upper part of the town where the town hall is, they could hear some noise down here in the theater. So the mayor's right-hand man comes down and says, Demetrius, you blockhead, if you have complaints, bring it to us. And he broke the meeting up. Paul, he got himself out of town, headed north, doubtless going through Smyrna, which is one of the cities mentioned in the book of Revelation, modern-day Izmir. Ephesus of the time was a huge trading center, and the details of the story Kent just told us emphasized the wealth of this Roman city. A silver guild gathered in an enormous amphitheater outraged over the loss of their tourist trade. Imagine how big the population would have had to be, how constant the flow of tourists and pilgrims to support these craftsmen. Even in a partially restored state, Ephesus is stunning. We see marble roads and marble storefronts, even marble latrines. If the public bathrooms are that luxuriously appointed, you know you've reached an affluent urban center. So what you see here is estimated to be like 30% of the whole thing. As you can imagine, not everything is worth excavating and it costs a lot of money. So this is part of the city that was excavated. Well, let's go see it. Yes, time to see it. Everything else uh, is local. Talking about the marble and construction material. And, you know, these granites were all over Mediterranean. You may have seen in uh, different cities as well. I think if you were a stone carver, you would never run out of work. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, that's the good part back, of it. Back in certain areas, we see these horizontal scratches or distortions on the marble. They were made in order to prevent slipping. Not for the people, but for the animals, yeah? Sometimes the animals need, you know, certain places to continue their way. So this place was said to be, you know, a medical school and a hospital. So who was Paul, and how did he end up in Ephesus? Luke and Kent will lead us through the biography of this central character in the story of early Christianity. Many Christians know Paul because of his vision on the road to Damascus. But sometimes we forget that he was raised in what is present-day Turkey. So Ephesus may have been more familiar to him than even Jerusalem was. We know of at least three apostles who traveled and preached and taught and interacted with people in that part of the country. Peter probably traveling through Paul, of course, stayed in Ephesus for what one account says in the book of Acts, three years. John came for an unspecified time. He certainly was in the country when he was exiled to Patmos, where he received what we now call as the book of Revelation. Paul himself, there's an early record that says he was born in a town called Gishala which is in what we now call Northern Galilee. But his parents apparently at some point moved to Tarsus. Tarsus is a town that's in from the south coast of what's modern Turkey, maybe 10 miles inland. Paul didn't grow up on the sea, but he surely would have known about it. He, of course, was a speaker of Aramaic first in his home. That's what his family brought with them when they left northern Galilee and moved to what we now call south-central Turkey. There he would have learned Greek because he knows enough to quote a Greek poet 
in his interaction with people at Athens, somehow his parents or grandparents had acquired Roman citizenship, which was passed to him. So that, that was something he always had in his back pocket as a chip that he could pull out. Paul grew up very strong Jewish tradition as part of his life and also educated in the Greek way of thinking and appreciating the world. He was really a person with feet in both places. As nasty as he was to Christians, he was exactly the right guy for the Lord to say, Saul, Saul, and bring him up short on the road to Damascus. Paul is all things to all people. Paul can be used uh, to be a revolutionary. He can be used to be a very conservative figure. Part of the problem is we don't have, again, we just have these letters so you can take snippets of Paul and kind of make Paul do what you need him to do. In certain moments, you know, Paul is an, is an apocalypticist. He sees the end of the world coming and he sees this new kingdom. So on one hand, you might be thinking, yeah, this is someone who's a revolutionary. But then it's also in Paul where you have him saying things like, honor the, the, the leaders of the land, right? In Romans, right? Like, pay your, he's essentially, pay your taxes, don't cause trouble. Listen, let's just play nice. Paul grew up in a, in a, a situation where the Roman Empire controlled the whole Mediterranean plus lands far to the east, which included Turkey, what we now call Turkey, and well beyond that. So his citizenship was a pass to all of those territories. Paul definitely chose this city because there was a big population here, because it was a port city There was a moving population, people coming in and out to the city. And he had another advantage. He was Jewish in the, you know, uh, beforehand. And with the help of his Jewish connections, he was able to get hospitality. Hmm. Because to walk or to travel with some money, it was very dangerous. Ephesus is a place that Paul not only journeyed to and got to know the Christian community with, but he lived here, his trade as a tent maker. And it was a good place for him too because it was a port city at the time, the sea came all the way up to the city. And so people from everywhere would come here and he was able to send his letters, exchange information and do trading. There had to be somebody who carried the mail uh, in very real sense. So there, there are people who are known from different accounts to be the person to whom Paul entrusts, uh, entrusts his note, his letter. Our earliest evidences for believers in Jesus come from the letters of Paul. And these letters are rich in terms of the information they give us, but it's all, they're also limited in the information they give us because they're letters, right? They are one-sided sets of correspondence that, that are written on an occasional basis. So we, for example, we only know that early Christians practiced some form of the Eucharist because Paul happens to mention it because there were problems around it in the city of Corinth, right? So we only have this information if Paul happens to mention it. And there's a massive amount of work that's been done on mining these letters to get a sense for what these early communities were like. Broadly speaking, we get the sense that, at least within Paul's communities, these were largely, we would call them former pagans. And I don't use that as a pejorative. I just, I mean, these are people who formerly were, would have been they would have worshipped Artemis, who came to know someone like Paul, this itinerant preacher who's preaching this message of Christ crucified. We do know that that's the earliest gospel message, that Jesus Christ, that he came to earth, he was crucified, and on the third day he was resurrected. That's what Paul says is my good news, Christ crucified. And that very early on, these groups started gathering together in small house churches so they, haven't, they don't build churches. They meet in the homes of a wealthy patron, whoever's the richest among them, who can, who's got room to spare. They come in, they have a meal. They probably, in 
Paul's early church, it seems that they're speaking in tongues. They're having these spiritual experiences, which are kind of hard to unpack. Eating together, memorializing the body of Christ, the blood of Christ. And so Ephesus becomes a place where the followers of Jesus are no longer only Jews who believe the Messiah has come, but they're worshiping and having communion, what we today might recognize as a contemporary Christian service, something distinct from Judaism. As far as persecution goes, we know that early Christians were bumping into tensions with their, with their neighbors, all very localized at an, early, at an early period. The first two centuries, what we find are localized persecutions where either you've got tension in a local community or a local city, but we don't have much, often much information on this. We just know that it's happening. We don't know why it's happening always. It probably is related to this, just suspicions around this group that meets at night. You know, you're, you're all getting together. We didn't see you at the festival. We didn't see you pouring wine out. To, so you're not eating meat sacrificed to idols. Why are you being unpatriotic? One comparison, which I'll sometimes make, is, is you, you look at how the emotions that it, it elicits when someone, for example, doesn't stand during the Pledge of Allegiance, right, or doesn't salute the flag, right? It's, that elicits strong emotions now, but now make it about gods and your kids and rain and the crops. You know, this, you can see why this, this could be a, a, a massive point of tension. The word atheism in antiquity doesn't mean what it's used, but it doesn't mean what it means today. Today, atheism means someone who just doesn't believe in the existence of a god. Mm -hmm. Atheism in, let's say, the first century of the common era, that is a term that's reserved for people like Christians people who don't believe in enough gods. Uh -huh. so, so you have, like the people of Ephesus would look at someone who believes in the God of Israel or Jesus and say, you are an atheist. Why? Because you're not believing in enough gods. You're, you're choosing just this one. And look, we're surrounded. You are being atheistic, anti-God, right? In a way, which is different than how we, uh, how we use I have that never today. heard that. That's oh incredible. yeah, you can see this in second century literature. They'll say, away with the atheists. They're talking to the Christians mm. because their uh, Christians are being accused of not being pious enough. And them proclaiming they're waiting for a return of a king. That's right. There is language around a new kingdom, a new king, a new where all things are made new and this world as we know it is going to be flipped upside down. You can see why some would not would not appreciate that that Especially rhetoric. if you were the current king. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's right. Or patron or if you were an official underneath that king. You're listening to In Good Faith. We'll be right back. Welcome back to In Good Faith. I'm not sure if anyone can move across a continent or join a new faith and live in a new place without being affected by the place where they live. Yes. Do you see Christianity being affected by this society that they were part of? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Is there some cross-pollination or influence that you could talk about? One way to answer it is to look at our earliest literature and just notice even the varieties around specific questions that we might call cultural questions, but for them are just deeply related to what they view as uh, their practice in relationship to the divine. In antiquity, if you have a butcher who's slaughtering animals and then that animals is gonna be sold at a meat market, a mckellon, right? Mm -hmm. Very common, you may as well sacrifice it to the gods. Offer it up to the gods, let the smoke go to the gods, give the gods the stuff they like, the fatty stuff that we're not gonna eat anyway. And now the meat can go out and we can sell it to the humans, okay? So a question, and this is just common practice. So now a question for the early believers of Jesus. Can we eat this meat? Should we eat this meat? It's been sacrificed to a God, right? Uh, not our God. Within the New Testament, our earliest literature, you see multiple voices wrestling with this question. And John writes about this when he's in Ephesus. You look at, uh, for example, the book of Revelation. Look at the first few chapters. The first few chapters in the book of Revelation are John is writing letters to these communities in Asia Minor, the cities of Ephesus and Smyrna, all these places, right? He's writing uh, Pergamon. He's writing letters to them. And in one of his letters, he critiques those who are, he says, in a way, practicing a false religion because what are they doing? They're eating meat sacrificed to idols. 
This, he would say, you have let the culture creep in. You have, you have defiled what is holy. Then you read the letters of Paul. Paul also addresses this question in his, in his correspondence to the Corinthians. Should we eat meat sacrificed to idols? What does Paul say? Paul says, it depends. He says, you and I know it's not a big thing because we don't even believe that these are real gods. That's what Paul would say. So you and I know it's not a big deal if you eat meat that's been sacrificed to one of them. But if you're in company with maybe a new adherent, mm-hmm. and if you think that eating that meat sacrificed to I- that idol is going to somehow disturb their faith, then don't do it. He said, I would abandon all meat to save the faith of my friends, essentially is what he's saying, right? Mm-hmm. But he goes, but if everyone's okay with it, if we all know that this doesn't mean anything, then go ahead and eat meat sacrificed to idols. So right there, just in those, those two little data points, you have this question of what is ours and what is theirs? And Christians are perpetually negotiating this through time around questions of ethics, meat sacrificed to idols, questions around theology. Who is Jesus? Jesus in relationship to the Father feels like there might be two, but wait a minute, isn't that polytheism? So this is over the centuries, Christians are gonna have to wrestle. Do we believe in one God or do we believe in more than one God? It's actually kind of reassuring to see the writers of the New Testament coming at the doctrine with differing opinions because that wrestle continues even today. And it's good to remember that these people were sincere just as modern believers are sincere as they try to understand and live the tenets of their faith. So not only is Paul writing letters in Ephesus, but he's also a missionary. In fact, Paul's time in Ephesus represents his third missionary journey. And his missionary journeys are why we know about Paul and why 60% of the New Testament sites we read about are in Turkey which because of Paul's efforts, truly is the cradle of ancient Christianity. They all started Antioch, which is part of what is now modern-day Turkey. Modern-day Turkey along the south coast swings even more further south, and there's a little, it's almost like a triangle of land that sits there that still belongs to Turkey. Then over the border is Syria. Over the next border is Lebanon and so on. And there sits Antioch. And that's where Paul starts in all of his journeys. The first one started by water to Cyprus. Goes from one end of Cyprus to the next. And it goes to Antalya. You look and you can just see cliffs along there as the water area sort of turns and goes farther south. First missionary journey is partly by water, but also by a lot of walking. And he was gone from Antioch almost two years. So that's a big chunk of time. I have no idea if he had dependents, how they took care of themselves. He may have been single at the time. Whether he ever married, that still remains unknown. And his second missionary journey required more than a year and a half because that included Corinth, where he stayed for a year and a half. applied his, his skills. I expect that he sewed the twill that formed the canopies that were, that were erected on stilts of some kind or some kind of post under which the athletes sat when they competed in the so-called Isthmian Games, which were held every other year. And because of his skills, I suspect that he was hired to go over there and sew stuff for the athletes they could get out of the the sun. The extent of the travel is really amazing, especially at that point in history. Paul went mostly by foot. One of the hints is, in one of his accounts of what happened on the road to Damascus when the light came and he heard this voice, and he said he talked about his companion standing. They didn't seem to have climbed off a donkey or a horse. They seem to have been on foot as they walked along. And I suspect that's the way he mostly went too. They, they might have found a donkey that they could lease or rent and bring back at the end of a couple of weeks or something, but that's not very secure. When he comes ashore in what is now southern Turkey, Antalya now, and begins his first missionary journey, he goes for about 350 miles turning around and coming back. So that's a long way. 
We're talking months of travel, especially because they stop. They try to find converts. They try to establish a little branch of the church there. And then they go on. And then back they come a few weeks later after they've reached the end of their journey and they're starting back. They come by a few weeks later, see how they're doing, how, how are things going, what can we do to help? So how did Paul proselyte? How did he meet people and go about teaching them about Christ? Paul goes into a town, let's say, for Sabbath. He and whoever's with him, Silas or Barnabas, whoever's traveling with them, go to synagogue service. The leader of the synagogue service says, ah, there are a couple of brethren back here. Why don't you come up and introduce yourselves and give us a little message? We're so tired of hearing ourselves talk. So <clears throat> Paul, of course, will go up there and inevitably he'll talk about his experience and his testimony of Christ. By doing so, he splits the audience of the congregation in half. Some think, that's really amazing. Others thinking, this guy has you know, a broken head. And, and almost inevitably, we see local Jewish people, people who are angry at him, try to foment some kind of trouble. We know, for instance, that he was stoned on one occasion in the same town where he and his companion had healed a man who, who couldn't walk and gave him back his, ability, his mobility. Um, and they were, they were hailed as deities in the town. But in the end, the opponents of Paul turned those people against him. And, um, and he was stoned for Christ. I just never pictured it with all the mountains around it and all the green. Just it's kind of built in a valley. As we head to the outskirts of the excavated ruins of Ephesus, Lutfi shows us a row of lion heads. You can pour water into the tops of their skulls and it drains out through their mouths. Irrigation and water displays like fountains were one way that the Romans showed off their technological superiority and wealth. You know you want to say something. <laughs> <laughs> I think these were the early gargoyles. Paul has some great insecurities. I mean, read 2 Corinthians. He talks about these super apostles, these people who they're more eloquent than him. They perform better miracles than him. They, and he disagrees with all of them, right? And, and, and he's frustrated because the Corinthians happen to like these guys more. And so that's when he gets into this thing where he's like, look, the reason why I know I'm the best of the apostles is because I'm the worst. He has like, like Christ crucified, like I'm, I am like Christ crucified. Look how many times I've been beaten, shipwrecked. So his affliction then becomes, I may not have the miracles. I may not be as good of an orator. I would love to have some of their writings just to see what he was responding to. You have to admire Paul. He was just as dedicated to spreading Christianity as he had been to fighting it. He's always all in. And that's sometimes very frustrating to people because he never seems to relax and he pushes people. We have some letters we know that he wrote, others we're not so sure about. And there's such beautiful language when he talks about doing all things in Christ. And he seems to really be able to do all things. He outlines his travels, his travails. He also supports himself through his weaving, his tent making. And good heavens, the man survives several different shipwrecks. He gets imprisoned, he's attacked, and yet he keeps going. So we know he was a believer to his very core. We also know he was human and fallible. He wants sometimes to do stupid things like walk into a riot and talk sense into people. Luckily, in that case, his companions prevail and they whisk him away to safety. And he sometimes tries to enforce cultural norms, like telling women to be silent in church, things that aren't necessarily any directive from God. So when I look at Paul as a whole, I see a dedicated servant who was willing to suffer and did suffer a great deal of hardship for the cause of Christ. And he also gives me hope as a fallible human that in spite of his own shortcomings, he really did change the world for the better. I talked earlier about how interesting it is to walk the very same streets as Paul did in Ephesus. 
and I wondered who he said hello to and where he bought bread or extra sewing needles. And sitting on some fallen Roman columns, I took a look around the marble city, and I realized that while he was here in this center of wealth and commerce, that he was engaged in something much more valuable, using this place as a base of operations to send out the message of the gospel. One of the famous stories has to do with his arrest in Jerusalem. It's Passover time. People come from all over the empire. He took into the temple some people who were under a vow, which looks like a Nazarite vow. He read the strictures of that vow, Numbers chapter 6. And somebody sees him there. They recognize him. He was grabbed by the mob. They're taking him out of the temple area to stone him get him off the property. Around the porticos, there were these covered porches, all who ran around four sides of the temple crowns. And on top of those were Roman soldiers. And they spotted this kerfuffle going down here. On the northwest corner is what's called the Antonia Fortress. There were always soldiers there ready to go. And the word came, down the stairs they went, out through a door into this huge courtyard, and they went right for the trouble. Now, they're not saying, sir, would you please step aside, ma'am, would you please get out of the way? They're going through with their swords, get out of the way, out of the way, out of the way. They grab Paul, haul him back to the fortress, and they just get to the doorway where the steps start going up. And Paul says to the centurion in Greek, may I have a word with these people? Completely surprising him. Well, I, I guess so. So Paul goes up on the first, second step, just inside this thing, and in Aramaic, speaks to the crowd. The soldiers who are holding all these people at, at spear point, or at sword point, they have no idea what he's saying. But all these other people out there do. And when he gets to the part where he talks about Jesus, the place goes mad. Dust in the air, people start throwing stuff and so on. They hustle him into the fortress, and they clap him in its cell. Well, they're going to do something bad to him. They're going to beat him and get out of him what they can. And he asks the guy in charge, is it lawful to, to punish Roman citizen without trial? Oh, they knew they had trouble on their hand. So eventually, he gets a posse of 300 horsemen, Roman horsemen, to take this guy down to Caesarea, which is on the coast, where he'd be safe and away from the city. He was under house arrest there for two years. At the end of two years, Jewish authorities had come to Caesarea to argue that Paul should be taken back to Jerusalem. And Paul knew that if he went back to Jerusalem, his life was forfeit. So he says, I appeal to Caesar, which is his right as a Roman citizen, to be heard by the emperor or at least one of his associates. So he appeals, and the governor has no choice but to send him. So they put him on this ship. It's November, because eventually they're caught in this winter storm mm. that blows off the heights of what is now Turkey, blows across the Mediterranean Sea, caught them on the leeward side of Crete without any anchorage, he ends up in Rome. This is, of course, at the end of his ministry. He will die in Rome. Contemplating Paul's experience was one of the great joys for me in Turkey. But I'm going to leave his story now because he was not the only famous citizen of Ephesus. In fact, local legend has it that John the Beloved brought Mary, the mother of Jesus, with him to Ephesus and that she died here. Just up the mountain from Ephesus is this little stone building. And the story is that when John came here, he brought Mary in his care and he built her this house where she lived for the rest of her days. There was a German nun in the 1800s who had visions of this place as she lay on her deathbed. And those descriptions were very detailed. And people came and looked and found this place, which met all of those. It had been turned into a little chapel after the death of Mary. And so now it's a place people come and visit as a holy place, including the visit of at least four popes we know of, Pope Francis most recently. Other tourists, many of them pilgrims in their own right, walk ahead of me up the paved trail up the hill. I wait in line to go into the stone house. Everyone's silent, and if they have to talk, they whisper. 
Just past the house is a little shrine to light candles. And it's amazing to me that every year on Ascension Day for Mary, Protestants, Catholics, and Muslims all gather here to reverence her. Yes, the Quran dedicates a chapter to Mary's experience, and she's reverenced by those who practice Islam as well. Inside the small chapel, there are only eight or ten chairs. There's a nun and two priests praying on their rosaries, each of them from a different order. You can tell from the color and the style of their robes. We're asked not to record inside the chapel out of respect. But imagine brownstone walls that reach 10 or 12 feet high. Above my head, thin-paned windows with iron bars arch and create a reprieve from the stone. Another shrine with candles stands in the nave, and someone in front of me stops to light a candle. So I linger in front of the alcove, where a statue of Mary rests. The entire length of the chapel might only be about 20 feet, and then I'm outside again in the dappled sunlight. As I and my crew wind down the path that leads us out of the property, we pass pilgrims tying papers, handkerchiefs, and ribbons to a wire scaffold against a stone retaining wall, a symbol of the prayers they've offered here. It's a serene ending to our visit to this ancient city of Ephesus. You're listening to In Good Faith. We'll be right back. Welcome back to In Good Faith. And I just wanted to share one more thing with you, the end of my conversation with Kent Brown. He and his wife lived here in Turkey for a while as missionaries for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And I asked him about what he came to love about Turkey, about the culture, the people, and the experience of living in a majority Muslim country. Muslims are, are happy and up beat. And that, that comes across in every connection you make, every person you mm. talk to. They, 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 just, they look on the positive side of life rather than the negative. And that, that was as much a buoyant force around us that, that we really came to appreciate. For me, of course, to be in a place where Ephesus is no more than an hour and a half away. I could catch a train, we could take, we could catch some other mode of transportation, go down to Seljuk, get, a, get off the train, get into a taxi, we're at, we're at the site. Um, it was wonderful, but, but that wasn't the biggest thing. Uh, I, I really found that being around Turkish people was a good, a good thing for my soul. I'm looking back on Kent Brown and what he shared with producer for In Good Faith, Heather Bigley. Hello. And when we went on this adventure, Heather, it's always these people connections that you make that seem to really be the important things to me. But that doesn't mean that the places aren't important. In fact, I think we were both pretty awestruck walking into Ephesus. Yeah, and I have to say, uh, you have a little more experience. You've been to uh, Jerusalem, and you've traveled a lot. I thought I was a world traveler until I got to Turkey and then realized I've never been past Europe, right? And here I was in these ruins, uh, and there are many ruins we visited there in Turkey, but here especially, I was silenced, I think, mm. just looking around, seeing um, and imagining this this city would have had 250,000 people in it, which is bigger than a lot of the places I've ever lived, right? <laughs> um, and we saw it filled with tourists, which was, in a way, almost how it would have been yeah. 2,000 years ago. It was a busy, bustling place, and right. there were probably pickpockets <laughs> and people selling trinkets and, and people just speaking, like today. Yes, people speaking all these different languages, and yeah, it was astounding. And I really, everybody needs to go and look at YouTube uh, and look at our YouTube videos because it was one of the more incredible things I've, I've experienced. And sometimes you'll go to ruins and you'll see where... Uh, 
Columns have fallen because of an earthquake, or often they're even hauled off to build something else. Yeah. Like, yeah. like a water cistern in Istanbul. <laughs> exactly. But this is a place where so much, even though crumbled or toppled, is in place. It was like a whole downtown made of white marble, yeah. like every square inch, every building facade, even a 60 foot high library. And I. You know, I wonder, did they have library cards back? (laughs) Could you check it out or did you have to go in and show your hands were clean? Right. Surely Paul would have stopped in there. Yeah. Well, it was interesting. Lutfi told us it was the census library. And so that made me think, oh, well, it wasn't just, you know, beach novels that were... (laughs) were on display, but it was literally, you know, where they were keeping track of everything that was coming in and out of that city. I also had this image of this Roman fist descending Mm. upon the city at times. And it's easy to think that maybe they did this because they didn't like Jesus or they hated this new religion, but they didn't really even see Christianity yet as something separate from Judaism. It was sort of this sect of Judaism. Right. And I think when we look backwards uh, as Christians, I think we sometimes don't take enough time to understand why they would have, they themselves would have felt rejected. And that felt so clear when Kent Brown is talking, when Luke Drake is talking, just about economics. These people right? just wanted to earn a living making their amulets, their silver images of Artemis, and suddenly people aren't buying that. I really loved when. Um, Luke Drake said that, you know, Christians were often thought of as atheistic because they didn't have enough gods. Yes. Right? <laughs> like, oh, we're the atheists. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, there's this whole <laughs> twist um, of thinking like, oh, so we're not paying enough attention in their in their perspective to gods and God and, and the divine. Um, Yeah, it's a huge switch to go from this polytheistic to monotheistic world. And the shift in mentality from a local God to a universal world God. Yeah. That was a big deal. But (laughs) in a day when it was rare that you were the person who traveled, you might travel a little and then you meet these other people who have a whole other religious system and it becomes apparent, oh, we each have our own deity. Right. And that seems to be the way of things. And then you get these later calls to monotheism, which is there is one God of all the earth. Right. And whether that's Islam or Christianity or Judaism, whatever it comes from, Zoroastrianism, um, that's a new thought in the world. Yeah. And I would say that in the history of monotheism, we're all working to actually get back that local God, right? Like, there's this universal God, but somehow he knows me. Personally. Personally. That's very local. And cares about who I am and what I'm doing. And uh, that's the tension, I think, in monotheism. It's easy today to look back at Christianity as an established world religion that started and grew, sort of like a just a continuous chart. Yeah. But these people coming one or two at a time and just going into a town and saying, guess what, guys, I have news, right? the good news, and then start preaching it. There was no guarantee. They didn't know the ending of that story. And so it reminds me how precarious the beginnings of this particular movement were and the people who wanted to squash it. Right. And Luke Drake brings this up that... Paul himself thought the ending was much closer, right? Mm. Paul literally thought within the next generation, if that, the second coming uh, will occur. And, you know, we don't need to have children. We don't need to get married. We don't need to, you know, he just thought it's all happening, folks. You know, let's just tell everyone we can. Um, And I really respect that fervor, uh, though I am glad. I am kind of glad there's been 2,000 years. I got to show up. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and live my life. So yes, I'm glad about and that. if we had been able to tell those struggling, early, shipwrecked, hungry, hardworking Christians, the place, the very place where you are for a thousand years is going to become a Christian land. Right. And I don't know how they would feel about knowing, but then someone else <laughs> will come in for a thousand <laughs> years, but you'll keep going elsewhere in the world. It's fascinating and 
I love every little place that we can focus in each episode of this of this land of Turkey that has been called so many things and been through so much over the centuries. You know, the thing that I loved, um, and I was surprised at how touched I was at being at Mary's house in Ephesus. Uh, and this is something that our research turned up for me. I hadn't known about this. You, you knew. I mean, you give a tour in Israel. You talk about Mary in Israel. Yeah, there are different. One has the Dormition Abbey in in Jerusalem, just outside the old city on Mount Zion, which says that's where she fell asleep and was lifted to heaven. Here is this parallel tale that John the Beloved, who to whom Mary's care was entrusted by Jesus from the cross, that he took her, her there and built her a home, and that it's from there that she ascended. Yeah, and it was beautiful. Oh, it's a beautiful little place. There's such a peaceful feeling. And the whole interfaith aspect of various flavors of Christianity coming together with Islam as well to celebrate Ascension Day in August every year, they hold that all together. That's kind of a rare thing in in the world to have an interfaith celebration like that. Yeah. When we interviewed Uzma Jafri earlier this summer, she gave quite a passionate... Uh, sort of summary of how Mary is treated in the Quran. And that was just, I mean, after having been to Mary's house and hearing that, I thought, oh, these people have taken this figure into their hearts. She means so much to them. And it made me want to look up more and sort of contemplate more about Mary. Well, that's the fun of what we're doing, of the exploration, is there's always something to learn from. Be inspired by and even kind of add to your own store of of wisdom and knowledge. Yeah. Make sure you check out YouTube for videos on location throughout our Crossroads of Faith series focusing on Turkey. Next week, we'll be exploring the ancient cave churches in Cappadocia, where early persecuted Christians tried to find peace under the Roman Empire. Many thanks to Kent Brown, Luke Drake, and Lutfi Bedar for speaking with us. This episode was produced by Heather Bigley. Our production team includes Emma Engebretson, Leah King, and Katarina Martinich. Our sound designers include Daniel Phillips, Mitchell Towsley, Joshua Fouts, and Carly Wilson. Our opening music is The Cut Meadow, performed by Yeti Karanfil for Essen Music. You can hear more on Spotify. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds share their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. If you like the show, be sure and leave a comment or review where you get your podcasts and help spread the word. Find us on Twitter at In Good Faith Pod and on Instagram and Facebook at In Good Faith Podcast. In Good Faith is a production of BYU Radio. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. I hope you join me again soon, right here, In Good Faith.